as rain and snow do not return until they've watered the earth, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So my word shall accomplish that which I purpose. For you shall go out in joy and be led back in peace. The mountains and the hills burst into song and all the trees clap their hands. Instead of the thorn, the cypress. Instead of the briar, the myrtle. And it shall be to the Lord for a memorial, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off, a monument and a name. This is the word of the Lord. Rabbi Gunter Plout says of this 55th chapter of Isaiah, this is definitely the work of the second Isaiah. And Dr. Paul Hansen says, what a fitting conclusion to the work of the second Isaiah. You recall, of course, that within this one scroll, our scholars believe we have the writings of three different persons. The first 39 chapters were written by a prophet who lived in the 8th century before the Common Era, one who wrote of the death of King Uzziah, who had written of the rise to power of Tiglath-Pileser up in Assyria, who had watched that territory expand and expand under the leadership of Tiglath-Pileser until finally the forces would swoop southward and absolutely destroy the ten northern tribes. So the first 39 chapters are begging the kings and the people to reform, to reform, to turn again to their God. If you come to the altar and remember that you have anything there against your brother, get up and go and make peace and then come again to the altar. But with chapter 40, the tone changes entirely. The vocabulary, the language changes. We have the words sung by the tenor in Handel's Messiah every Christmas. Comfort. Comfort ye, my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. That work continues through chapter 55. An unknown writer who lived among the exiles in Babylon, who's writing a good 150 years after the first. Dr. Walter Brueggemann and others believe that with chapter 56, we have a third writer who writes through chapter 66, one who actually is home again in Judah with those who return from exile. But this chapter, written right near the end of their 50 years in Babylon, before King Darius of Persia overruns Babylon, that is, Forerunners of today's Iranians overran forerunners of today's Iraqis and told the Jews they could go home. Let's look at this passage. Number one, as rain and snow do not return from the earth until they have watered it, causing seed for sore and bread for hungry, so does my word accomplish its purpose. You might think my word is an allusion to this second writer, but if you read the translation in the Tanakh, the translation done by America's rabbis for the Jewish Publication Society, they put a big capital M there for my word. It means God's word. 
God's word does not return to God until it has accomplished its purpose. Dr. Edwin Searcy is a preacher in the United Church of Canada out in Vancouver. He has written that every Sunday morning he stands behind a beautiful wood pulpit that has two Hebrew words engraved in the front of it. Etz Hayim. Now he said newcomers don't know what it means. Some of our own congregation forget what it means, but we remind them from time to time. And brochures about our church certainly remind them Etz Hayim means the tree of life. It's made of wood, which once was a tree. And from this beautiful wooden pulpit, the book is read. It's taught. It's preached. The tree of life. But if I turn to address my choir, he said, out of the corner of my eye, I can see a big wooden cross, the tree of death. The tree of life, the tree of death. Look at our cross. The artist who designed it tried to convey both of those things with one symbol. If you look carefully, you can see that, in fact, there's an indentation on the cross members reminding you that once there was a body hanging on a cross. Of all those horrors of spikes driven into wrists and ankles, of one Jesus of Nazareth who was suspended on such a cross for six long hours from nine o'clock in the morning to three o'clock in the afternoon, before he cried out, It is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. The tree of death. But this is a Protestant cross, so nobody hangs on the tree. He is not here, he has been raised. Tree of life tree of death. Every Sunday we're to be reminded if you try to save your life you'll lose it. If you lose your life for my sake you'll save it. Would you be one of my disciples? Take up your cross and come and follow me. Die to self and come alive in the Lord? Number two. What does that word say to exiles in Babylon and to you and me? You shall come forth with joy. The mountains shall shout. The trees clap their hands. Joy. When we flew from Newark to Tel Aviv, we had a tailwind, nine and a half hours. When we flew back, we had a headwind, 12 hours. That's a long time. At least on most of today's long-distance jets, 
One has choices. Even way back in the back where Gail and I were sitting, we each had a little screen right in front of our seat with lots of choices. Just touch the screen. It was a music screen. I could listen to Willie Nelson or John Rutter's Requiem. I listened to John Rutter's Requiem, the whole thing. There were movies. Gail said she watched five on the way back. I watched two. I'd not seen Secretariat. I remember when Secretariat ran, but I'd forgotten how magnificent that horse really was. Nobody's ever broken Secretariat's record at the Kentucky Derby or at the Belmont. I could have watched Gone with the Wind. I chose to watch next Babette's Feast. Remember that one? 24 years ago, 1987. Babette's Feast was the first Danish film to win an Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film, 1987. It's a story about two sisters, now well along in years. When they were young, they were beautiful. Young men hovered around, but their father was a very strict preacher, and he chased them all away. He founded this little cult on the cold, stormy coast of Denmark. The first two-thirds of the movie, though shot in technicolor, has basically only three or four colors. Sort of a dirty white and two or three shades of gray. People's faces, their clothing their houses, the landscape, and every day they eat salted cod. They catch fish, and they salt it, and they eat it 365 days in the year. The old preacher's long since died. The two sisters, daughters of his, are trying to keep the little group together there's nobody left in this tiny little community that isn't at least 75, 80 years old. They're dying. They're disappearing. But one day, a young woman arrived in this tiny little village. Her name is Babette. She has a note for the sisters. The suitor of one of them many years before had ended up in Paris, and he's come to know this young woman. He doesn't tell them that she is the most famous chef in the city in 1870. He just says she is a refugee from the political wars in Paris at that time. Would they please take care of her? They say yes, and she lives with them 14 years. They're coming up on the 100th birthday of these two women's father, long since dead. They want to have a celebration of their father's 100th birthday, and Babette has been notified by mail that she has won the lottery in Paris. A friend of hers has been buying a ticket and renewing it once each year. She gets 10,000 French francs. And she asks if she may prepare the 100th birthday dinner for this old preacher now so long since gone. And the sisters agree. 
They don't know what they're getting into. Suddenly, food starts arriving from Paris. And for the first time in the film, you see color, beautiful game birds, a big turtle for soup, all kinds of fresh fruits for dessert, beautiful purple and white wines and champagne. The sisters get concerned. They call all the little community together, and they decide, well, we'll eat, but we're not going to enjoy it. We'll talk about something else. But a general in the army who had once tried to win one of these young women as his own years before and had been chased away by the old stern father has eaten in Paris. He's the only one who really knows what's taking place at this meal. And as course by course is delivered to the table, he explains to the others what they're eating and drinking. Babette has arranged for crystal and china and silver. And they eat and they drink. And they eat and they drink. And old grudges are forgiven and old loves are rekindled. I want you to go out with joy, this writer says. Is your religion no joy for you? Is your relationship with God no joy for you? Is your family no joy for you? Number three. You shall go out with peace. That's not the word this second Isaiah would have written. It would have been shalom, of course. And shalom means absence of war, but it also has a basic meaning of well-being you thirsty? Then you shall have something to drink. Are you hungry? You shall have something to eat. Is it cold? You'll have a warm blanket or a fire to keep you warm. May you go out with shalom so that thorn and briar are replaced with magnificent cypress and myrtle. You know what crepe myrtles do in Oklahoma in July and August when it gets hot dry. They just bloom and bloom and bloom. Not thorn and briar for you anymore, but cypress trees and crepe myrtles blooming. In shalom you go. Tonight, the Academy Awards. Last year at Cannes, at the film festival, a French film was a big winner. It's called Of Gods and Men. It's about a little monastery then in Algeria. We were in Algeria a few years ago. Jason and I were trying to run every day. And when we got to Algeria, I asked our guide, in this predominantly Muslim country, is it okay if we run in shorts and little singlets? And he said, oh, of course. I said, are you sure? Absolutely, absolutely. He said, you'll find people here observing their religion in all kinds of ways. You'll see a few women in the burqas with only their eyes showing, but you will see others with their heads covered with scarves, but they'll be pink and blue and yellow. And you'll see some young women with very short skirts on mopeds 
and briefcases on their way to work. I said, good enough. Algeria. That's where this movie takes place. Gail and I have been to monasteries, very old ones, where once there were 200, 300 men. Not today. Monasteries today have five, six, eight, ten. There are eight in this movie. Eight aged men. Northern Algeria. Cistercian Trappist monks trying to live out their faith. The little village? Muslims. And so one of the old priests reads the Bible, reads the Koran. Reads the Bible, reads the Koran. One is a physician, and he's kind, gentle, helpful to all who come. And then one day the fanatics arrive. Islamic fanatics who threaten to kill all eight of these old priests. Will they flee? go home to France? Will they stay with the flock? All eight of them struggle together and individually about what he should do. Father Luke's Father Luke sits with a bottle of wine red like blood like communion and turns on the music. It's Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake. And he listens to the music, and he sips from his glass and remembers. There was a time when he loved young women. They were beautiful, and they smelled so good. But he left that for a greater love. He became a priest and a monk. How many times has he lifted this red wine to his lips in saying Mass for those who would approach the table? What is life? What is meaning? What is purpose? How does one give oneself to the greatest love? Tree of life, tree of death. They're very close together. Number four. As you go out with joy and shalom, know that there will be a memorial and a name. That's what it says. You know what those Hebrew words are? Yad Vashim. Yad Vashim. We had not been to Israel in 14 years. So the day came when we were going to Yad Vashim. I didn't know the old one had been torn down, but a new one had been built. The old one required a lot of reading. Lots of old newspapers had been preserved, laminated, to know what happened each year, 1933, 34, you had to read, 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 read. Not with the new one. It's built through a hill. Our guide said it represents a knife blade 
that cut into the very heart of Judaism. It's almost 200 yards long, 180 meters. Has panels, glass panels, so that light just pierces down through it. When you walk in the, in the front door, you can see all the way down, 180 meters, bright sunlight shining down through the glass panels. But you can't go from here to there. You have to turn left into the darkness, 1933. And then you cross the light to 1934. And then you cross the light and go into the darkness of 1935. Cross the light into the darkness of 36, 37, 38, 39, 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, 45. The new museum features lots of faces. Steven Spielberg and others have gone round the world looking for survivors, recording as many as are willing to be recorded. When you walk into each room, they're paraphernalia from that period, but there's a face on a flat screen, a beautiful old face, a woman, a man. I was there in 1933. I remember 1934. Another, I was there in 1935, all the way to 1945. And then there's a huge big dome, sort of like this one. There are pictures. Sweet little babies, children, teenagers, young adults, middle-aged, old men and women, 800 pictures. An equally big pit with water. With water. And then you go out the door and there's the Spiegel Museum entrance. It's built in the side of a hill as well. As you walk toward the entrance, you see growing out of the stone a sweet little face. A little boy, two years old. His name was Uziel. He and his mother and father were arrested, put on a train for Birkenau. They didn't know where they were going. They were crammed so tightly into that boxcar. But finally, when the door was opened, there they were on the Judenrampa in Birkenau, with an officer pointing right to instant gassing and death or to work details. The Spiegels were young and looked really healthy. So he motioned left. And then an officer grabbed that two-year-old child and wrenched him from their arms and sent the child to the right. The Spiegels survived. They came to America. And some years ago, when Yad Vashim was first built, they added this section. 
You're supposed to put your hand on a rail and start walking ahead into this dark hole. It gets darker and darker. People get quieter and quieter. And suddenly you're aware of a name, an age, a place. A name, an age, a place. A name, a, an age, a place. Uziel Spiegel, two. One and a half million who died were under the age of ten. And in this hall, they read one and a half million names, and then they start over. A name, an age, a place. Slide your hand along the rail and keep moving. And suddenly you round a corner in the darkness and there's light. A candle reflected in hundreds of mirrors. A name, an age, and a place. Until you stagger out the other side. But earlier that morning, we had been in the streets of the old city of Jerusalem. We had walked right past a little playground, very much like ours here at Boston Avenue, with precious little Jewish children, two, three, four years old, riding tricycles, hollering at each other, laughing, carefully looked after by adults. And right beside the playground, a half dozen old Jewish men and women sitting in the sun, reading their morning papers. Like the prophet said, one day the little children will play in the streets of Jerusalem and old men will sit in the sun and not be afraid. Or Dr. Walter Brueggemann, in commenting on this passage, thought of that old spiritual, free at last, Free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. 